Hey guys, before we begin today's show, I would like to recommend a splendid history podcast called Battles of the First World War podcast. Now, Battles of the First World War podcast is a show that looks to go in depth into the stunning battles of the Great War of 1914 to 1918. The show really goes into the details of how and why these battles unfolded and why they happened as they did. In listening to this podcast, you will revisit many of the remarkable stories of the men and women who lived, fought, and died during World War I. The amount of detail covered in this show is absolutely incredible, and I have certainly learned so much about many of the famous World War I battles from listening. I highly recommend you check out Battles of the First World War podcast and join the amazing host of the show, Mike, in rediscovering the great battles of World War I. Go check out Battles of the First World War podcast. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Before I introduce today's guest, I have two important things to tell you. If you enjoy the History of Vikings, then do me a favor and write me a review. I would love to hear your feedback. Secondly, if you have any good episode ideas, questions, or know someone who you think that I should have on the show, feel free to contact me as I would be delighted to hear from you. The easiest way to contact me is via my email address, which is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Again, that's noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Today, I'm joined by Anders Winroth, professor of medieval history history and Bridget Baldwin Professor of History at Yale University. Now, Anders Winroth is just an inspirational figure amongst the Viking scholars, and he wrote an excellent book, which I'll put a link to in the description of the show called The Age of the Vikings. And I actually have a copy of it right in front of me here on my desk. And it's just a remarkable book. Talks about anything you would ever want to know about the Vikings from their warlike lifestyle to the everyday life of the Vikings. So I do implore you to go check that out in the link below. But Anders Winroth, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Noah, and thank you for your kind words. It's my pleasure. So why don't you start us off by uh, simply this? You know, there's sort of this enduring image of the Vikings as warriors and raiders and men with blood-stained tunics and, and unkept hair and possibly even double-edged axes and, and horned helmets. But there's many myths surrounding the people that we know today as Vikings. So what do you think are some of the, the biggest myths surrounding the Vikings in modern day culture? Well, there are plenty of myths. I mean, one obvious one immediate, that one immediately thinks about is the horned helmet that you mentioned. They did not actually wear horned helmets. And if one thinks about it for, for uh, uh, even a short while, one realizes it's very impractical to wear a, a helmet with something protruding from it. If one is going out into fights where one battles with swords and sticks and axes because then it's very easy to knock the helmet off your hand. The horn helmet is a 19th century uh, invention, so it has little to do with that. And I don't think they were uncamped. The Vikings have a reputation for, and in fact uh, did in the, at the time, have a reputation for, for being quite well camped. They combed their hair, they bathed every Saturday. The, the word for Saturday in the Scandinavian languages actually means uh, 
bathing day, uh, and one so one thinks that maybe they bathed every day. There's even evidence. There's an English chronicler who says that these Vikings they come and they smell good, and and uh, our English women run away with the Vikings because they actually wash and comb their hair. I don't know if that's true, but it's it is in an actual medieval source that says so. But I can I mean I can continue to talk about uh, what uh, I mean other myths about the Vikings. The Vikings have in particular this reputation for being particularly violent and it is it is certainly true that they were they were violent they could even be very violent but i think when one when one says that one must remember that this is the early middle ages which was in general a very violent time and the vikings were a kind of uh, uh, freeloading entrepreneurs of violence they did not really have the technology or the or the wherewithal to inflict a lot of violence in the way that a state can do it so for instance they are the earliest vikings are contemporaries of of the great emperor charlemagne who who's you know sort of generally considered the one of the founding figures of of europe and uh, i mean he he was a king and an emperor he had an army he had a large army he could inflict a lot of violence and he regularly did the reason why we think that the vikings are especially violent is that in their case the vikings attacked people who could write uh, and people who were accustomed to write i mean they attacked the monasteries and churches of europe which is where literacy resided in the middle ages so in their case we hear the stories of their victims more than we hear the stories of the vikings themselves which is much harder to get to while in the case of for instance charlemagne we only know about about his feats through the people that he paid to write about his feats so in other words when when they're written down they are immediately given a positive spin that's fascinating and and certainly talked about it on the show before and i just really think it is important to revise this this view that we have of the vikings as these uncivilized barbarians but um stemming off that question i mentioned your book earlier and i've just fallen in love with it I, i read it all the time. Yeah, I have um, bookmarks in it and and things highlighted because I I reference it when doing research for my show. But my favorite chapter of the book is the chapter on the Viking farm. And what I love about that chapter is it it just gives us, based on archaeological evidence, a glimpse of the Vikings at home and what they were doing when they weren't raiding. So, you know, what were the Vikings doing when they weren't off raiding and and pillaging monasteries? They essentially did the normal things that that people did in the Middle Ages and you know depending on on their status in life they could some were farmers some some were some were chieftains so they did in those cases they did different things I mean in a way it's it's an interesting question because the word Viking actually I mean, it's usually understood as an ethnic label for early medieval Scandinavians, but the word actually means pirate. So Viking is not a term for a people, it's a term for a job. And that job was to raid and plunder. So in a way, if one asks, what do Vikings do? The answer is raid and plunder, because that's the definition of the word. But of course, what one is interested in as as a historian or generally interesting, curious uh, uh, person is what did they do? What did the people who were Vikings do other than raiding and plundering? And uh, then they 
they did a lot of things. What I find interesting, I mean, I'm very happy that you liked the, the chapter about, uh, that I call at home on the farm, which is actually the chapter I think I had the most fun writing and researching. Maybe we, we can get back to that. But what I first wanted to mention is that the reason why the Vikings could be raiders and plunderers were their ships, the ships that allowed them to get to the places where they wanted to raid and plunder. But they also used those ships for many other things, Uh, for instance, to trade. Early medieval Northern Europe is a very interesting area where there is a lot of trade going on, maybe not large volumes, but certainly large values, where people are, people, these are Vikings who are are not raiding and plundering for the moment, are transporting valuable goods across Northern Europe and selling it on markets, I mean, all over Europe, frankly, uh, on markets on the coasts of, of France, on the on the coasts of England, all the way over in in, uh, in Russia and so forth. They encounter, they encounter Arabic merchants from the Arabic Caliphate and they sell stuff to them. Uh, and then they they take home the, the pay they get, which is silver, uh, silver being money in the early Middle Ages, silver made into coins. And thanks to their their ship technology, they are able to to go essentially all over the place as long as as there is water, both on the oceans and the inland seas and and also on on the rivers. Uh, The rivers of Europe and especially Eastern Europe has a lot of rivers. They can transport the goods to to where, where they can sell it. They can also go far to get the goods that they want to sell. I mean, just to take one example from many of things that the Vikings uh, could uh, make a lot of profit from uh, uh, walrus ivory. This is the this is the teeth of walrus. Uh, walruses, who, as you know, live in the far in the Arctic North. So you can find them, or you could find them in the in the Viking Age. You could find them in northern Norway or in in northern Iceland, and especially in Greenland. That's probably why the Vikings also settled Greenland. And they went there, got the teeth, and they brought it to Europe where it was sold. And then it was used in the same way as elephant ivory was used for uh, producing works of art. And this was particularly profitable because the Viking Age was a time when Europe had problems getting elephant ivory from Africa or India because the the trade routes there had been disturbed. Wow, that's fascinating. I've always been fascinated with, you know, trading networks and and sort of merchants. And it's just fascinating to understand the Vikings as having this trade network and, and the sort of goods that they traded. But I'd love to, again, go back to your book and go back to, I mean, it's just filled with so many great things. Anything you would ever want to to know about the Vikings? But again, going back to the chapter at home on the farm. So you mentioned you you really enjoyed writing that. And what are some of the things that you've discovered while researching that chapter? What are some of your favorite parts? The Swedish authorities were were going to broaden a road. And in Sweden, one always has the practice of when there 
least some kind of construction work like that going on. You first send in the archaeologists to check that you are not destroying something, something valuable. And the archaeologists found this uh, well-preserved skeleton from the 11th, early 11th century. And because the, the site where uh, the skeleton was found was, was very close to these rune stones that had been standing there since the 11th century, they were able to very plausibly identify the woman that, whose skeleton they had found with uh, the the woman who paid for those rune stones to be raised. And it, that's, it's very unusual that you can associate a particular skeleton with a particular name when the, when the skeleton is so old. I mean, yes, with kings and such, but it's very unusual with, with more normal people because most of the time there, there is not that connection to, to some written evidence and, and the skeleton. So here we have a woman that we already knew quite a lot about because she and her family, they were wealthy people. They, they, they were sort of dominant powers in this little corner of Sweden. Uh, they had raised a lot of runestones that had been interpreted and, and read long ago. So on the one hand, we know all these things. And then suddenly we have her skeleton. So then we know how tall she was, how old she got, what her body type was. She was small and lithe. We know suddenly that she broke her arm at one point, but that it healed nicely. So it was taken care of. All these personal details that it is, there's barely anybody else who is mentioned in a runestone that we know things like that from or about, I should say. And also she's buried. She was a Christian, but these are the, she would be in the first generation or two of Christianity in, in Scandinavia. So she is buried with things in her grave, grave goods, which Christians are not supposed to be. And those tell us things about her as well. So she's buried with these weights that were used on medieval scales or balances. So you, those, those scales were used to measure the weight of, of silver when you were when you were doing transactions with money because you didn't count the coins you weighed, how much they weighed, and that uh, determined their value. And because she was buried with these weights, one gets the idea that that means that she was the one who was, well, at least when she died, she was responsible for weighing the silver. In other words, for, for managing the economics of the farm that she and her family were running. And that's that's fascinating in itself. And that gives the background to that she could afford to have all these runestones erected. That's fascinating. And before we move on from this this topic, I feel like a lot of people really could you just kind of clarify for for those people who are new to the Vikings, you know, what were the rune stones? Certainly they're illustrations carved into rocks and stones. If you if you look at runes, I mean you can look them up on the on the internet, you will see that they actually look pretty much they look rather similar to our letters. But you can see that whoever designed them has tried to avoid uh, is drawing as few lines as possible. So for instance, the rune that means an N, uh, you know, a, a capital N, a normal N, uh, is two vertical lines and one diagonal. In the rune, you have only one vertical line and the, and the diagonal. And then similarly with other letters. So clearly at some point, I mean, some almost 2,000 years ago, uh, Scandinavians or Northern Europeans in general uh, imported the 
Roman alphabet and started to use it themselves in this simplified version. And since they wanted to save on lines, that tells us that it was hard work to make, to write a rune, which tells us that they were not, they were not writing on parchment or paper or, or something, but they were inscribing them in in some uh, medium. Most of it wood, which we know very little about because wood that is that old usually has disappeared by now. But they also inscribe it on, in stone. And then one can understand that they wanted to draw as few lines as possible. Uh, so they in, incised them, uh, inscribed them into stones. And then in the Viking Age, there was a real fashion for raising stones, finding a nice shaped, nicely shaped stone, making an inscription on it, and then stand, standing it up so people could see it. This was a way in which you could boast about what a great person you were who, well, obviously could afford to have a runestone made and, and raised. But also the text often tell you something about the person who, who, who had the stone erected. And that is another way they can boast. I mean, there, there are stone, there, for instance, there's a stone not very far from, from Astrid's runestone that I talked about uh, a moment ago, where uh, a man called Ulf says that I was in England and I got paid by King Knut and others for fighting for them. So we know that this man from Sweden was part of the army that conquered England for, for, for Knut the Great in, in 1016, uh, thanks to these runestones. I mean, the runestones are, are marvelous because that's one of the few sources that allow us to hear the voice of the Viking and not just the victims. And one can use the runestones to, to figure out what the Vikings thought were important. And Astrid was somebody who, who had several runestones erected. And I used the inscriptions of those stones to tell the story of Astrid in the book. I mean, partially actually in her own words. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating, you know, and, and that is certainly a way that, that we can really, yeah, hear the Vikings talking to us, you know, hear them, hear their voices. But another chapter in your book that, that I loved was called um, The Religions of, of the North. And of course, talking about the, the religion of the Vikings, which of course we know today as, as yeah. Norse mythology. And, you know, we've talked about Norse mythology uh, quite extensively here on, on the history of Vikings. And I've um, outlined many of the various Norse myths, but how did the Vikings view their gods? Did they fear their gods? Did they see their gods more of friends? Thought of them as friends. They seem to have believed that they might just show up. The Icelandic sagas, which of course are much later than the Viking Age and much later uh, long, written, long, written down long, long after anybody still believed in these gods. The Icelandic sagas tell several stories about, about various gods coming, I mean, showing up suddenly in in a house or, or whatever. And, you know, it's usually the usual story that at first you don't recognize who it is, but then when he leaves, you realize, oh, that was Odin or, or, or Thor or, or, or something. Uh, they certainly sacrificed to them. They certainly tried to make them happy. It's... It's very difficult to do research on Norse mythology because the sources are very poor. But I, I tried I tried to put together what one can know with some level of security 
in the book. The problem is that, you know, we we learn from European writers about these gods and the European writers are usually Christian. So they, they certainly have an axe to grind when they talk about the beliefs of, of, uh, of the Scandinavians who to boot, of course, were Vikings. So they are, uh, they are from the beginning people that, that you don't like. And then we have, uh, we have the Icelandic sagas and also the famous book by Snorri Sturtlason, the Icelandic antiquarian who, who collected the stories about the uh, Norse gods and wrote them down in the 13th century, which is more than 200 years after the end of paganism. So, so a lot of, of what is written in Icelandic sources is literarily shaped and formed by the literary ideas of people like Snorri Sturtlason, who, who was a great writer. If he had lived today, he would write best-selling novels, I'm sure. But um, it means that one cannot be certain that what they say is, is actually what happened. But in the book, I'm trying to use the evidence that exists uh, produced by Scandinavians during the Viking Age, the little that exists, and, and uh, uh, to find this story and the story of, of the uh, Norse myths and the Norse gods. And there one certainly can see that people were afraid of the gods and they, they respected the gods and they sacrificed to them. Fascinating. And, and for those of you who, most of you probably know this, but the book that Anders is referencing, other than his own book, the one written by the Icelandic antiquarian Snorri Sturluson that is indeed the prose edda which we've talked about before i think the myths about thor are the most are the most interesting ones they are the I think the most amusing ones. And I mean, especially, you know, the story of him going out to fish and uh, fishing up the Midgard serpent, uh, the serpent that apparently is thought to circle around the earth and hold it together. And uh, the story of this that, that's preserved in some old poems that were written down in Iceland in the 13th century. Uh, I think it's just hilarious. Thor goes to this giant and uh, they get into some sort of a kind of, of fight or, or argument about who is the most match of the two. And uh, of course, what happens is that they decide to go out fishing and uh, uh, Thor asks the giant, where can I get the bait? And the giant is pointing to a field. I mean, obviously thinking that Thor will be digging for worms or something. But instead, Thor takes the, the bull on the on the field and, and tears his hat off. And then he's using the hat as bait uh, and they and they swim and they not swim of course but they, they they row out in a boat and uh, they fish and uh, I, guess, I guess the giant is uh, capturing whales while Thor is capturing an even greater creature the the Midgard serpent the enormous uh, animal that holds holds the earth together and starts to pull him up and of course then the earth is no longer held together so there's earthquakes and stuff until the giant is so scared that uh, he uses his axe to, or maybe even Thor's axe, that's not clear, uh, to cut off the, the, the line to the bait so the, the serpent can go back down underwater and the world survives. Uh, what I really like about this story is, I mean, it's written with great humor as preserved in this poem that is in the so-called poetical Edda, which Professor Larrington has put out a very good translation of by the way. Uh, but what, what I really like about it is that the, this myth is illustrated 
on uh, inscribed stones, rune stones and picture stones. Picture stones is what one calls raised stones that contain no runes, but only pictures. Uh, and you can recognize on some of these pictures that I have, I have at least one in my book, not two, uh, that that's Thor and the giant who are out fishing. And you can see the snake and everything. That's definitely an intriguing story. If I may just ask one last question before we complete our discussion today. We talked about Snorri Sturluson's Prose Edda, and I would love to know, he wrote that collection of stories in, in Norse myths um, quite a while after after Christianity became uh, the state religion of many countries and paganism sort of dissipated. Uh, this is another of the sources that actually tells us about the Vikings in their own words. So I, I use this kind of poetry quite a lot in in my book. The poetry is difficult to understand. It was difficult already in the 13th century, especially because it contains a lot of allusions to myths. So what Snorri wanted to do, he, he was an expert on this poetry. He wanted to teach others to understand it and also to compose their own poetry in the same style. But to understand it, you have to understand the myths. So he he had, therefore, he produced what is, in essence, a handbook in understanding poetry and enjoying poetry, uh, but that becomes a kind of handbook to Norse mythology, or at least as he thinks it is. He used as his sources this poetry that, as I said, is hard to understand. And sometimes he misunderstood it. And because he misunderstood it, he tells stories that he actually made up that surely did not exist, certainly did not exist in in the Viking Age. But that was his purpose, to explain the poetry and to teach others to write the same kind of poetry. So Snorri himself was actually quite good at writing poetry that looks as if it were written in the Viking Age. And his nephew, Sturla Thornarsson, was also a very powerful poet in his own right. And some of his poetry looks like it could have been written in the Viking Age. So that that was his purpose. Anders, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a just a real treat to be able to have this this conversation with you. As I mentioned earlier, I will have a link to Anders' glorious book, The Age of the Vikings, in the description below. I do implore you to go check that out, and I'm sure if you purchase a copy, you will certainly not regret it. If you enjoyed this episode of The History of Vikings, do me a favor and write me a review. Feel free to contact me with any suggestions, questions, or inquiries that you might have. My email address is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Vikings.com.